The waters of the Arachthus would eventually overfill its reservoir and fill Edis's capital city if the dam remained closed. For Atolia, the death of the thief was worth the loss of a season's harvest, but his death was the least Atolia could accomplish and the best that Edis could hope for. There was no reason to satisfy Edis's hopes, and she had every desire to confound them. Toto, I don't think we're reading the thief anymore. Hopes confounded. Mead listened to. Knives out. Jen is forcibly removed from the throne room. Welcome back to the Atolian Archives, your Queen's Thief read-along podcast. I'm Noelle. And I'm Caitlin. It's December 16th, 2018, which means that the return of the thief is in only 91 days, barely three months away. You may have noticed that last episode we had a third voice. It was not the voice of a god, it was Chip, who is a local tallboy and friend and my roommate, who we just sucked into this whole circus, and may show up from time to time going forward as our schedules line up. His hand joke contributions will be missed this episode. Especially since we are creeping ever closer to the thing, the incident, moment zero, the biggest pre-volcano disaster of the series. Hey, I've just had a thought. Maybe Jen will steal the volcano. I've seen speculation that he'll send it to the Meads as a gift. How do you send somebody a volcano? With panache and flair. In this chapter, Helen finds out what's happened to her thief. Atolia deliberates, and Jen gets hit in the face again. Also, who's rush is there? If that's how you say his name. Looking greasy and acting greasier. He doesn't need to put oil in his beard. It just soaks out from his personality. So chapter two, like this whole book, is truly in mixed point of view. Which is so different from The Thief and different from every other book in the series. Mm -hmm. Because the way it's mixed in this chapter is... It's almost jumping paragraph to paragraph, like one page is on Atolia, the next is on Edis, the next is on Jen, the next paragraph is Atolia again. And that structure reinforces the theme that nobody knows what anybody else is thinking and nobody really knows anybody else's motivations. Everyone has a different experience and a different perspective and a different agenda while all these things are happening. Right. And also... They're all basically being given equal weight as perspective characters. Mm -hmm. So the focus is not just on uh, black and white. Jen is the hero. Atolia is the villain. Now we get to see her um, more human aspects as we see into her mind. And that's related to a big idea in this whole series is the idea of performance. Who's performing? Who are they performing for? The line between a public persona and private personhood and where does one bleed into the other and is there really a truth of a person underneath that and the characters that we see that most prominently with are Jen and Atolia. Both Jen and Atolia are playing a role and have an element of theatricality in the way that they interact with the world and what connects them to each other is their ability to see past that in mm -hmm. each other. Uh, or maybe just humor the idea that it's possible to see past it. Mm -hmm. And we see that in the idea of Atolia's mask. Right. Which comes up in this chapter. And part of her character development in the series is 
um, or in this book, rather, is her wondering how much of that political role and that mask is truly her own personality. Has she herself become like that, merging herself with her role, or can she still, in the future, separate herself far enough to regain compassion and kindness and empathy and human emotion? There's a great bit on 23 into 24 in the 2017 edition, which is, Whatever her neighboring monarchs thought, she very rarely made hasty decisions, and she didn't engage in violence gratuitously. If she executed traitors by hanging them off the city's walls upside down until they were dead, it was because she couldn't afford the luxury of beheading them in private, as soonest did. Everything she did had to be calculated for its effect. And so... Atolia's violence is very real, but there's always an element of performance in it, of this theatricality. Politics is a performance. Mm -hmm. And it's important that a, a distinction is made between personal and political desires. We see um, that other people in the series think that Atolia is just a fiend from hell, she has no soul. But this quote kind of shows us that, I mean, violence and bloodshed is not something that she personally wants. It's a political tool that she feels forced to use. And related to that, uh, there's this moment in this chapter where Eugenides smiles at Atolia and she hits him across the face with her open hand. And we can joke about that. Like, he smiles at her and she just doesn't know what to do with it, so she just decks him. But the actual wording of that moment is really interesting, because it says, she dressed, as always, in imitation of Hephaestia, but it was far easier to imagine the impersonal cruelty of the great goddess than to see cruelty in the face of the queen of Atolia. Looking at her, Eugenides smiled. And so she's dressing in this persona of Hephaestia, this goddess in whom it's very easy to imagine this great cruelty. But Eugenides, when he looks at her real face, doesn't see that. He looks past the image mm -hmm. and sees the person. Which is ironic because arguably she does do very cruel things. Absolutely. And easier to imagine the impersonal cruelty of the great goddess than to see cruelty. I mean, you can see cruelty in her. Sometimes, I mean, arguably. And an idea that we keep coming back to is the necessity of violence within these social structures. So, Jen knows that in order to be successful and to preserve not only her rule but her own life, she has had to take these steps and become this person who she wasn't before mm -hmm. and that's what makes the um the dancing in the garden which will come up later so profound mm -hmm. because he understands and wants to find again or believes that it's possible to find again the person who she was before all of this mm -hmm. and jen's own character development in this series starts to go down the same path of he hasn't yet truly been violent as a political strategy, but in this book we see him start to have to 
to use violence to attain his ends. And um, in this chapter, um, it says, she had heard that he had an aversion to killing people, but like Sunis, she was reluctant to assume that a childish reluctance for blood would prevent him from following the orders of his queen. He had already proven himself to be extremely loyal. And he will engage in violence more and more as it goes on. And he becomes this counterpoint to her in a way, I would say in part to ease her burden. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting here that in this quote specifically, um, this reluctance for bloodshed is seen as childish, as a distinction between childhood and adulthood. Mm -hmm. So that in the eyes of the society, maybe Jen's assumption of a more violent role is in a way maturity like a part of his growing up which is messed up (laughs) atolia's situation is unique she's not helen it's another idea that we're coming back to that we've brought up before they're in very different situations and uh, we've talked about how they're in different situations politically and socially, but also economically. There's a hint at that in this chapter. Atolia had ascended her throne after the assassination of her father, and her country had never been fully at peace in her reign. Her army was well paid and therefore loyal, but her treasury was nearly empty. She waited a good harvest to fill it again. And so Edis gets this leverage by threatening to dam the river and put the crops of Atolia in danger. And so uh, Atolia is maybe a bit more economically unstable than Edis, which may contribute to it being more politically unstable. Another sentence we picked out, well, it's in the middle of a sentence um, when Atolia is the prospective character saying that Eugenides had caused her no harm beyond stealing something she hadn't known she possessed. And um, two weeks ago, when we were chatting with Chip, uh, we brought this up, and Chip said that he thought that this was referring to the gift he had stolen Hamiathus's gift from a temple in her country. And That's she what I thought as well. Known. Yes. Which, that was news to me, because I had always thought, reading this line, that he it meant her heart, Aww. and she didn't know she had a heart because <laughs> she's this stone-faced queen, but then she fell in love with him, so... That's totally in line with the tone later, but I think it's too early for it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Think she's, I don't think she's thinking about that yet. I think it's a very Megan double entendre. <laughs> yeah, the double meaning is totally there, though. <laughs> this chapter is all about using eugenides as a tool for various kinds of political leverage. Mm. Like, he's there, but he has no power. It's just Edis and Atolia posturing to each other about what they're going to do with him. Right. And it's said in there that um, Eugenides had hinted to Edis that uh, the risks would be greater if he returned to Atolia another time, but she had still sent him, just assuming that he would get out of it. So he was still, um, like, not in control of that decision. That was her decision. Because Jen, in the end, is not going to do something that's... Uh, against her best interests or uh, against her orders because he's 
fundamentally loyal, which is such a cool contrast between Jen as this trickster and this wild card and somebody who is really, really about duty and deference. Yeah. My son. (laughs) And something else mentioned in this chapter is that Atolia has a deep and abiding hatred for Edith and her thief, which also gives us way more insight into her character and the relationships between Edith and Atolia. Yeah. And shapes the entire rest of the novel with, like, this is um, really informing all of her motivations, I think politically if, as well as personally. If I were Atolia, I would be deeply resentful of Edith. Yeah. I mean, she has good reasons to hate her. And just this person who is a clear parallel to you but has such an easier time and not that helen has an easy time but that's how it looks from the outside Uh, a lot of helen's uh, burdens and issues are very internal Mm -hmm. also speaking of helen um she says in this chapter when she hears the news about Jen, I was wrong to send him. The admission was as much concession as she could make to the horror she felt at her mistake. So that's very interesting that this is almost similar to Atolia's mask in that Edith is not able to show her emotions over this. She's not able to show her own personal reactions, but she has to react with... Uh, the impassivity of a ruler who needs to make decisions without emotional input to do what's best for the country and not for Jen. And all she can say to Jen's father is a very plain, I am sorry, in front of other people. The Minister of War is such a good secondary character. He's one of my favorites. It's, and we're going to get a lot more of his relationship with Jen in this book. There are things I will never forget <laughs> that are burned into my mind with the Minister of War <laughs> in the Queen of Atolia. And in this chapter, he's no more able to show horror at this than Edith is. Yeah. He doesn't have a public reaction to this news. He just shakes his head. We're going to see, starting here and increasing over the course of the book, the pressure that these political situations put on these personal relationships. Yeah. Chapter 2 also has Nahusharesh. Yes. Uh, he is not yet named. He's just the Mead ambassador, which is another example of a person being identified by their function. Mm-hmm. This is the chapter in which he gives Atolia his emperor's gold because she refuses to take the ransom from Edis and then says it's a pity about the ransom. And he says, then take it please as a gift from my emperor. The meat also saves Jen's life. I know. They, Atolia says, take him out and hang him. And they are on their way. <laughs> and the meat intervenes. Which is such a sore point for Jen later. Yeah. That he owes something to this man he hates. I think Jen does not like being beholden to anyone for anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, except for very specific people. Who he already trusts and loves. <laughs> yeah. Atolia has... Uh, a very thin skin, I think, is very clear in chapter two. Every single thing that anyone says to her, she interprets as an insult and it pisses her off. <laughs> She's so uh, alert to 
potential threats mm-hmm. at all times that she can't have a non-confrontational conversation with anybody. That's all she knows how to recognize. Yeah. Oh, gosh, one last thing about Atolia. Oh, there's so much to say about my girl Irene. Uh, she says of the Edesian gods, they were not her gods and she would not worship them. And uh, she also says, out loud, your gods are not mine. And so even though she's deliberately dressing in this imitation of Hephaestia, she does not believe in these gods. Uh, I think she doesn't like the idea that she's not absolutely in control of what's going on in her life, mm-hmm. uh, which is a contrast with Helen, who has a very zen approach, I think, to the gods' involvement in her life. There's that wonderful line that we've mentioned before, um, that it's because the gods know her so well, mm-hmm. not because they make up her mind for her, that they're able to uh, push her life in certain directions. Mm-hmm. But Atolia is not willing to think in that vein at all. Yeah. And at this point, we find out later that she has already interacted with Moira when Moira told her how to catch Jen. So by this point, I guess we have to assume that she has been confronted with proof of the gods' existence. Even if they're real, still she ain't reaction. gonna worship them. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is ballsy! Yeah, that's pretty big energy. <laughs> we mentioned in our last episode that Megan took a line from Howl's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne-Jones and put it into The Thief. And uh, we asked, who knows what that line is because we couldn't find it. And Jayhawk Girl on Tumblr found the line and it's uh, the dialogue line, what a lie that was. So you are a genius. You truly have hawk eyes. And what a good line to be in both of them. So key. That's <laughs> at the very the very end of the series. There's just like a couple blank pages, and then what a lie that was <laughs> printed in the back. That would be very appropriate, I think. It's got me thinking of all the similarities between Jen and Howell. Ooh, dramatic, vain, concerned about appearances. Will break down walls to get to their person. Would Jen be good at soccer? Oh, now we're gonna go yes. <laughs> go down a whole road. <laughs> he would. That's chapter two. Next episode, it happens. Send us your comments, questions, thoughts. Chime in at atolianarchives.tumblr.com. Be Be blessed blessed in in your endeavors. endeavors.